Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash knoxrobinson to learn more. Do you feel like you've been hustling to stay afloat? Yes. It's a constant hustle. It makes long-term planning really difficult. I've gone through periods where I've lived so small. We're in the midst of the greatest economic transformation in our history. How long have you felt like you've been hustling? Most of my life. Since my first job as a paperboy when I was 12. I did deliveries for like Grubhub and Caviar and Postmates. We already automated away millions of manufacturing jobs, and chances are your job could be next. There were times where it was like, well, I have 700 bucks. <laughs> this is the percentage, yeah. you know, that is rent, and then I have $30. Even when I was in construction, I always felt like it could end tomorrow. I just don't know what to do. I'm willing to work. I don't know how to go make money right now. And I'm like, fucked. We have to accelerate our economy and society as quickly as possible. We have to evolve in the way we think about ourselves and our work and our value. Do you remember the last time you weren't hustling? Um. Not really. Um, that's a good question. Realistically speaking? No. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Perhaps you've seen the memes of Old Economy Steve, featuring a yearbook photo of a kid in the 70s with an optimistic smile. At the top, it reads, graduates college. At the bottom, gets hired, or doesn't move back in with parents. My favorite version of Old Economy Steve is, followed the American dream. Didn't wake up yet. I quit my job as an adjunct English professor in 2010 in an economy ravaged by the Great Recession. And I got out of prison in 2011 with a four-year gap on my resume owing over a million dollars to lawyers and relatives who'd taken out loans and second mortgages to help pay for my defense. And the legal bills kept coming as I was reconvicted in absentia. When we first met in 2015, Amanda was working for minimum wage in a used bookstore. As we've built a life together the last five years, we've been fortunate enough to not slip backwards, and to even find moments of success when we're not scraping by. We've also been fortunate to be able to continue working during the pandemic, but plenty of our friends have had it a lot worse. Here's one of my best friends, Madison. My main gigs have been in the serving world, coming in at any time and working for restaurants that you don't actually work for because your friends work there and they just do a lot of under-the-table stuff. And then it's been finding really weird and sometimes not very safe opportunities off Craigslist Literally imagining, so I actually might die tonight. And I've, like, seriously thought about selling myself in certain ways. Right, you're like, it's that, or I'm going to sell my eggs, or like... No one even wants my eggs anymore. I'm 33. I should have done that, <laughs> but... Practically everyone we know has had a dozen jobs by the age of 30. Career has almost become a quaint, archaic word. We asked Chris's brother Kyle how many jobs he's had. Paperboy? Mowing lawns and winterizing houses, working as a under-the-table painter. I then worked at Subway as a sandwich artist, and at the same time working at the newspaper as a stockroom attendant. And then I got into games testing, getting minimum wage. He now does quality assurance for a tech company. And during the pandemic, business has been booming. But... My wife is unemployed because of COVID, and she's been on regular unemployment. It's something like 40% of her previous income. The job she had vanished, and it's not being replaced by anything. How soon do you think the job you're doing now could be automated? The job I'm doing right now, I could automate myself. Like, that's part of it, right? Like, the new job is automating. It becomes writing that code. Every job becomes automating your job away. Yes. 
We're from Seattle, which, if you're talking about the looming threat of automation, is basically Mordor. While most of the country was struggling from 2007 to 2012, Amazon transformed our city, hiring thousands and putting up massive new buildings in South Lake Union. By 2015, Amazon had announced the development of their drone delivery program. And that made me curious about how automation could shape our society, for better or worse. For the first waves of factory automation had already hollowed out one of our nation's great cities, Detroit. Chris ended up co-authoring a satirical novel called Deliver Us about Amazon launching its drone delivery program in the Motor City. With Trump's presidential run mostly a joke at that point, his decision to make Trump president in his near-future setting was mostly for laughs. But reality kept out-satirizing me. I'd become obsessed with the nexus of automation and economic inequality, but hadn't realized that Trump's election itself was one consequence of the automation crisis. It wasn't until years later, during the Democratic primary debates, that a different New York businessman connected the dots. Amazon alone is closing 30% of America's stores and malls, soaking up $20 billion in business while paying zero in taxes. These are the problems that got Donald Trump elected, the fourth industrial revolution. Like most Americans, we'd never heard of Andrew Yang until that moment. He seemed so unlikely. We need to do the opposite of much of what we're doing right now, and the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. <laughs> but then again, we were in an unprecedented situation, not just with Trump as president, but as humanity, standing at the foot of an exponential technological growth curve. It's so intuitive to think that today will be like yesterday, but the gap between world-changing technologies keeps shrinking. It took over 500 years to get from the printing press to the typewriter, 100 years from the telephone to the cell phone, when I went to prison, everyone had a clunky flip phone. And by the time I got out, that had been replaced with a glowing magic rectangle that was also a camera, a wallet, a global navigation system, a broadcast station, an access portal to the sum of human knowledge, a personal assistant, and a chess master, to name just a handful of the features of the device that you never leave out of your sight. In futurist Ray Kurzweil's estimation, an entire 20th century's worth of progress happened between 2000 and 2014. These changes have been incredibly disruptive, and they are already threatening to collapse our economy and our democracy. And yet, not a single prominent politician was addressing the automation crisis for what it is, an existential threat to our way of life, until Andrew Yang showed up. A threat like that requires a radical reimagining of capitalism and human value. It requires ideas like universal basic income. If you've heard anything about me and my campaign, you've heard that someone is running for president who wants to give every American $1,000 a month. I know this may sound like a gimmick, but this is a deeply American idea from Thomas Paine to Martin Luther King to today. Andrew Yang didn't just recognize this crisis and push for innovative solutions. He broke the fourth wall of our political theater. You know what the talking heads couldn't stop talking about after the last debate? It's not the fact that I'm somehow number four on the stage in national polling. It was the fact that I wasn't wearing a tie. Instead of talking about automation in our future, including the fact that we automated away four million manufacturing jobs, hundreds of thousands right here in Michigan, we're up here with makeup on our faces, and our rehearsed attack lines, playing roles in this reality TV show. It's one reason why we elected a reality TV star as our president. Andrew Yang seemed so unafraid of saying the true thing that everyone else considered the politically wrong thing. Perhaps because he wasn't a politician. He was an entrepreneur and nonprofit founder. But it wasn't his experiences in business that inspired him to run for president. I would never have thought about running for president if not for my experience as a parent. When our son Christopher was born in 2012, it was so transformative for Evelyn and me, and we struggled mightily, in part because Christopher was a very difficult child. Whenever he woke up, he would 
scream and cry to a degree where I thought, is that normal behavior? And you don't know because you're a first-time parent. It turned out that Christopher is autistic and realizing that when he was approximately four years old was actually a relief because it kind of helped contextualize the struggles. So seeing what Evelyn and I were going through, I just thought to myself, wow, there are two of us and we're educated and have resources. And I was kind of cocky going in because I thought a lot of people have kids, like how bad can it be? (laughs) Uh, A friend of mine said it to me in a way that stuck with me. He said, it's like the first time in your life where just trying harder doesn't work. When it comes to parenting, it's not like you can just wake up the next day and be like, yeah, and today we're going to just roll up our sleeves and do great work or whatever. Like, it doesn't really work like that. <laughs> right. Um, any parent who's listening to this knows what I mean. So I knew some of the numbers around the financial stresses and challenges that tens of millions of Americans were facing. Uh, I knew the numbers around single parenthood and motherhood uh, and how that's the new normal in our country. And I just cannot imagine being a parent and going through it alone given what Evelyn and I were facing. So all of that helped push me to think, wow, we're like, we need to do things better for people. And there's really no feasible way I saw to try and get some of the changes across the finish line that did not involve something very, very big, like running for president. During Yang's campaign, we were ourselves looking forward to parenthood. We listened to his book, The War on Normal People, while painting our future baby room. And I wish I could tell you that it's occupied now. But sadly, I had a miscarriage back in June. We're still trying. Thinking about bringing a new life into this increasingly unstable world with our own economic anxieties made us especially drawn to Yang's campaign, which was both radically forward-thinking and ultimately anchored in his own family. The tough part is that running for president took me away from my family a whole lot. So it's like my family inspired me to run And then the family had to do without dad for the better part of two years. It wasn't the first time Andrew Yang had asked his wife Evelyn to trust in his vision. They'd gone through it once before, when he founded a nonprofit called Venture for America in 2011. I said, look, I think we should train an army of thousands of entrepreneurs to start businesses in Detroit and New Orleans and Baltimore and Cleveland and St. Louis. And so she'd been through that journey with me. His experience trying to revitalize America's struggling cities convinced him that entrepreneurship wasn't enough. He had to think bigger. We joked later that she would only come out of the trail after I was polling at three or four <laughs> percent. <laughs> because the most likely scenario is that everyone ignores you and no one's the wiser. So it's not like you have to have this like, are you ready for your life to be scrutinized? Because there's a very real chance that that would never actually come to pass. But it did come to pass. Which meant their lives would be scrutinized and the media would do its best to turn Andrew Yang into a soundbite, into a prop for its own purposes. I've heard you speak about the difficulty of stepping into that media spotlight and retaining your own sense of personhood because it so easily strips it away from you, even when you're, especially when you're being vilified like Amanda was. Yeah, it's but nice I think, being you know, tabloid trash. <laughs> <laughs> but even when you're being celebrated, you know, there's this sense of unreality that descends on you, I think. Yeah, that's been a major adjustment of the last couple of years. And I'm grateful for the fact that it seemed like my humanity became a feature of my campaign. I couldn't succeed any other way. Like I couldn't out politician the politician, <laughs> you know, and, and the interesting thing is like the media does not care that much about your plans anyway. Like, you, you think you're arguing on that level. You're not. You're arguing on a different level. One of the challenges for us was, and Trump is the biggest illustration of this, is that if you're good for ratings, then they'll cover you. I was just myself and like running around and doing things. And then people would always stick a mic in my face and being like, aren't you like pissed off and outraged about this? And I was like, am I? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh. I can tell by your question, I'm really supposed to be. But like, <laughs> I don't necessarily feel that at this moment. So I, I didn't realize that that was uh, the nature of it until I got into it. In an arena designed to turn him into a caricature, Andrew displayed his humanity, placing his family struggles, like Christopher's autism, in full view. His wife, Evelyn, displayed her own vulnerability as well. On January 16, 2020, she revealed that she'd been sexually assaulted by her OBGYN doctor, 
at seven months pregnant. Evelyn actually felt this obligation because she saw the bravery of these other women who were uh, literally on the steps of City Hall saying, this doctor did this to me, and then just no one was showing up to the press conference. How was it for you to support her through that, becoming sort of the face of all of these women who had been targeted by the serial predator? It was a balance because I just wanted to support her in whatever she did. I, I just knew it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't my right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if Evelyn had chosen not to step forward, that would have been the right thing to do too. Yeah, I think especially there's that danger when women come forward, there's this sense of like, oh, are you just trying to get attention by talking about this? I mean, your story speaks to this too, Amanda. And there's such a powerful gendered element to it too. It was so bizarre. Like the way you were treated was insane. And of course it would not have happened if you were not a woman. Andrew Yang doesn't seem like a politician because he's not. He's also not a reality TV star. He's just a guy with some good ideas and a lot of compassion. It's the conjunction of those two things that created so much enthusiasm for his campaign. For us especially, it was his innovative empathy. Or empathic innovation. That got us to join the Yang gang. Yeah, maybe we should, um, you know, just to make it official. Yeah. You know, better. (laughs) Oh, wow. Look at that. It's the Yang 2020 Gary the math at. Thank you so much, both of you. It means a lot. I'm grateful to all the people who supported my run, uh, including you, Amanda. So thank you. Andrew Yang didn't get the Democratic nomination, but he got the entire party and the nation thinking in some radical new directions. And the economic collapse during the pandemic has only highlighted how problematic it is to have our economic security and well-being tied to our ability to work a job that may disappear through no fault of our own. The Yang Gang lives on because the problems Yang's campaign pinpointed are still waiting for solutions. Just listen to 21-year-old North Carolina rap artist Zudi, who made a Yang Gang anthem that, in the words of my younger sister, Slaps. Automate in a way all our basic autonomy. Basically pay for the fake aristocracy. Shaking the shame and the sickening policy. Saving on sacred and taking my property. Locked out for weed, locked out for poverty. Lots of us locked out for being anomalies. Logging us down if we ain't how we ought to be. How can I help when I ain't even proud? Yang bucks trickle up. Hey, Yang gang standing up. Playing James on a bus, man. John Doe know it's us. Hey, Yang Bucks trickle up. Hey, Yang Gang standing up. Hey, playing James on a bus, man. John Doe know it's us. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Canon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. The automation problem isn't simply an issue of evaporating jobs. It's about the resulting lack of meaning and purpose for human beings, which is already affecting a generation. As Yang pointed out during the debates. We have to say, look, there's record high GDP and stock market prices. You know what else are at record highs? Suicides, drug overdoses, depression, anxiety. It's gotten so bad that American life expectancy has declined for the last three years. In your book, you spent some time, like a whole chapter, talking about young men who are not college educated, who are increasingly feeling alienated from the economy and from society. And so they're spending a lot more time in their parents' basements playing video games. And I was wondering if you could like speak to having empathy for that demographic, because I feel like that demographic is having a tough time receiving empathy at the moment. (laughs) I vividly remember just being that teenager, just spending hours and hours playing video games. And I I appreciate the young men 
who don't feel like there's been a place for them because I felt the same way for years and years of my adulthood, certainly in my adolescence, like growing up the lone Asian kid and always feeling alienated. I found science fiction and video games and role-playing games to be a much more appealing version of reality than the day-to-day school life and the small or significant humiliations of, of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, yeah. of uh, you know, junior high school or whatnot. So I, I feel like I can relate to these guys because I was one of these guys. And it is weird how we've otherized and, and not expressed any empathy for people who are being pushed out of the economy and, and are struggling. And certainly some of the directions that they've been pulled in are noxious and terrible and toxic. But I met I met a lot of people on the trail who were struggling and they were just hurting. You know, there's a real lack of humanity in the way we we look at other people's struggles and, and the meritocracy is kind of there pummeling us at all times. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, if you're like at home in the basement with your parents, it's like, oh, something wrong with you. One of the silver linings of this pandemic is that now it's clear to us that it's no one's fault. You look up and say, hey, those security guards, hairstylists, yoga instructors, Anyone who required physical contact, you know, their opportunities have gotten demolished and no one's saying, well, they did something wrong. But there's like a a strange programming that we have in America to kind of blame whoever bad things are happening to, like, Mm -hmm. on, on their own decisions and behaviors. You know, for a long time, we've seen young men who have not had great opportunity find value and meaning through gangs and violence. But instead of acknowledging where that tendency is coming from, we've just decided to lock them away for the rest of their life. I I had some far out ideas while I was running in this direction where I feel like we should have publicly subsidized or free MMA training and jujitsu for like pretty much anyone Mm. who wants it. Like if you're a knucklehead, you just want to like freaking like (laughs) get some aggression out, which is like, you know, just freaking like get you a dojo. You can like roll with people. That that stuff's incredibly exhausting. You end up getting self-development and self-improvement habits really, really quickly. The same is true of many of the stereotypical young male activities, like video and role-playing games. They also offer opportunities for goal completion and camaraderie. I can verify this from personal experience. A city full of zombies. We're surrounded. Nat 20. Okay. Sweet. <laughs> Legolas. I'll cover you. Sometimes yeah, yeah. I'm like yeah, talking. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Ends up on the stash roof, like sliding a little bit. For me as a D&D player, way back in the day, like that taught me storytelling and informed my later career as a novelist. I never would have got that if I hadn't been building stories through Dungeons and Dragons. When I was a lawyer, I was literally a scribe. Mm. And I was like, I did not spend my childhood aspiring to be the fucking scribe. Like, I, I, <laughs> I spent my childhood like a... I was probably to go go into the woods and kill the dragon. So I was yeah. like, well, what's the dragon in this situation? Mm. It's sure as hell not this job. So like, so I thought the dragon was uh, starting a company. It turns out the dragon was too tough for me. And like, you know, Breathe Fire killed me. But then I was like, all right, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll try again. Make a new character. Maybe I can't take on the dragon. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll make a new character. And the politician. Instead of taking on the dragon, I'll take something more manageable. I'll like go kill this ogre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this podcast is called Labyrinths, and we're looking at times when people have felt particularly lost or stuck. And you're an optimistic guy with a vision. At least that's how we've come to know you. When does the man with a vision feel most lost? Well, I wasn't born a man with a vision, that's for sure. (laughs) I was was lost throughout much of my childhood, adolescence, through my 20s, too, because... When I left the corporate environment and started this business that failed and then everyone knew I'd failed and and I felt really bad about myself. And when you feel bad about yourself, it's hard to have a positive relationship where you show up for the date or whatever. <laughs> and you're just like, like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm like really down on myself. It's like, oh, that's attractive. <laughs> so, so I was a late bloomer and I hit my stride when I was about 30, 31 I found a great company and opportunity, and I met Evelyn, and those things happened in kind of quick succession. Since then, 
Certainly the biggest struggles I've had have been around being a parent and being a good partner to Evelyn. And uh, on the campaign trail, there were definitely some really tough times, but I, I knew I was doing something important that needed to be done. Certainly, I, I've had many dark nights of the soul when I was younger, and I'm very grateful that those nights aren't the norm now. Yeah. Hmm. You know, my dark night of the soul was after grad school. I went to grad school for poetry. And then I became an adjunct English professor. And it was a slog. It was low wages, job insecurity, no health care. Then I discovered that there was this thing called artist colonies. And I could just float around the country by applying for these fellowships. And I could just leave the job market entirely. And that was like a revelation for me. I quit my job and I moved into the wind for about four years. But then the, the burden of finding meaning and having a, a structure and order fell entirely upon me. Um, my relationships fell apart. Um, a lot of the stability in my life was gone. And psychologically, I, I crumbled a bit. So that was both incredibly liberating for me and a very precarious scenario. It points to this broader problem that humanity is going to be facing as the automation revolution comes. And this is going to destroy us or lead us to utopia. And how do we make it the, the latter instead of the former? We have to speed up as quickly as possible, Chris. And what you went through, I think most everyone would go through a version of that where initially you're like, oh, this would be great. And then like after a little while, it starts wearing on you. We all crave a degree of structure and community and meaning and purpose. And more and more of us are getting thrown to the wind. And unfortunately, when we lose our struggles, you don't really hear about it. Like you hear about it in, in your own life and like people in your life where you're like, oh, my high school classmate OD'd or did something tragic and terrible. But you, you have a lot of quiet losses and that's sweeping our communities. And it's been endlessly frustrating to me that we just don't really see that in our media reports. Like you do realize our way of life is disintegrating and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we can see and feel it around <laughs> us. That's what we have to stave off as quickly as possible. We have to invest meaning and value in people because just so many people just don't feel valued at all. And we're just bullshitting everyone being like, oh, you matter, you matter. But like, I'm not going to invest shit in you. But I said it. Mm -hmm. The fundamental shift is like, do we actually demonstrate that we care about each other through an investment that people will feel in their day-to-day -day lives? If we do that, then we can turn things pretty quickly. It's a big if. Right. So when I ran for president, I thought the problem was that no one had heard of universal basic income. And I thought, man, if, if I can get this to the mainstream, everyone's going to be like, what? Like, I vote for that guy. I might get a thousand bucks a month or whatever. Like, that yeah. number is. And like <laughs> I, I, I knew there would be a lot of people who'd be like, that's impossible. Now, as we're having this conversation, a majority of Americans think we should have universal basic income. Yeah. Well, you did a lot to shift the Overton window for all of us, I think, you know? And I, yeah, I played a role. I feel like I woke up a sleeping giant. Like you all and everyone else gave me like a stick and I was like, poke, poke. <laughs> Long before we connected with Andrew, we'd been talking about universal basic income among our futurist progressive friends. We called up our pal James Kalin in LA, who's been thinking deeply about how we might all eject from capitalism and survive the landing, a subject he's been writing about in a Medium series called Escape Pod. There's no better known or more active public participant in the conversation around basic income than Andrew Yang. No one since Martin Luther King has done more to popularize and normalize the idea. The problem, in James's estimation, is that most progressive leaders are still stuck in an outdated framework that doesn't account for automation. In Bernie's world, humans will always be doing labor, and therefore we need to secure the best wage for said laborers. Yang's like, well, I think the future is going to be increasingly automated. It's going to have an enormous impact on jobs in a negative sense. My belief is that something like an automation tax to fund something like a UBI, basic income, is a tactic for transitioning from where we are to where we need to go. And I believe that the collectivized ownership of the automated means of subsistence, to be very jargony, is our goal. Come on, James. Explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. 
automation plus capitalism equals certain death. It means the most absurd hyper concentration of capital at the 0.00001% of people. And it means the rest of humanity trying to grow genetically modified corn in an ash heap. Once human beings are no longer essential to the economy and you still have money and you're still accumulating wealth, you're fucked and there's no coming back from it. This problem is put into stark relief by just one company, Amazon. That inspired me to write a novel. It inspired our friend James to put out a rap song under the name Fuck Book Zuck, where he impersonates Jeff Bezos at an Amazon board meeting. Prices crash and the margin gets too slim to pursue, and after a decade of full automation, the free market is done. So the board's like, what the fuck? I thought we were doing quarterly earnings reports and Jeff's talking about the end of capitalism. And then a board member's like, well, I guess it's time to start a commune if it's true that the machines are gonna do all the work soon. And Jeff's like, if we keep buying shit that the machines make, then the only people getting rich are tycoons, that's me. And if the only people getting rich are tycoons, that's me. And the rest of you are living just to consume, that's you. Working eight to eight so you can pay the tycoons, that's me. Then that pretty much seals humanity's fate. So another board member summons up the courage and goes like, Jeff, like, what are we doing here? What is the point of all this? And he's like, the only way to make information scarce is to have a monopoly. So we're going to be the last company the only company on earth with all the customers will be fine. Andrew Yang, too, is worried about Amazon. Some of these firms are countries unto themselves, is how someone described it. And they're not wrong. No, at this point, Amazon's past a trillion dollars in market value. And I'm someone who likes innovation and progress, but it's clear the pendulum's gone way too far in a particular direction where we're just like hoping that they don't do anything too atrocious. <laughs> it's like they, they regard anything that stands in their way as friction. As in local businesses or labor unions. These different firms would look up and be like, how do I reduce this friction? You know, like they don't <laughs> yeah. really think too much about other deeper concerns. Concerns like human dignity and well-being. We asked our gig economy friends how their lives would have been different if, at any point, they'd had a basic income of $1,000 a month. I would have had time to pause and think about what I wanted to do. I would have finished college. I was doing full-time school with, you know, a paid internship and two other jobs. That would have been life-changing. <laughs> I definitely could have just done less and, and existed a little bit more. My whole adult life has been reacting. I've never been able to just choose a direction and go for it. Everything has been a response, just like, I have to keep up. And this is the first time in my whole life that I have over $1,000 in my account. Like, I literally, some mornings, I just open my bank account and I actually cry a little bit. Of course, there are the usual objections to universal basic income. How do you afford it? Wouldn't it cause inflation? Wouldn't people just play video games all day? How do I convince my dad, who's an accountant from the 80s, <laughs> that UBI is a good idea? Well, your, your dad's going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to have to wait those people out. <laughs> so for the big ones, the main one is like, how do you afford it? And the big thing people have to understand is, look, the money doesn't disappear. It just goes right back into your local economy, community, car repairs, daycare, groceries, local nonprofits. It ends up just flowing back in and creating a virtuous cycle. You're not going to see massive inflation in large part because you actually still have a competitive dynamic in just about every market. There are only three areas where we've seen massive inflation. 
Unfortunately, they're the ones that hurt. Housing, education, and healthcare. Mm. Why are these things going up in price and everything else is okay? It's because those markets aren't functioning properly mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. And you're like, well, I have no choice but to pay. Like healthcare, are you kidding me? Schools just keep on jacking up their prices every year. While the tenured faculty disappear and the adjunct class rises as the Uber drivers of academia. Yeah, so inflation's not driven by purchasing power. It's being driven by dysfunctional industries and markets where you just don't feel like you have a choice. There are a lot of practical objections to universal basic income that have practical answers that Andrew Yang is happy to provide. But there's a deeper objection that needs to be dispelled, a core belief in our meritocratic culture that human value is tied to economic value. So what does a world look like where we don't live and die by the amount of money we're worth? In your book, you talk about meritocracy, this idea that if you're rich, it's because you're good, and if you're poor, it's because you're bad. I've been deeply moved in your work by the recognition that there needs to be a reevaluation of human value that's not based on how much money you have. Amen. Whether that be in the economy or whether that be in the criminal justice system. And when we divorce human value from economic value, what comes afterwards? Your whole chapter on time banking actually reminded me, believe it or not, of prison and not in a bad way. Time banking, if you're unfamiliar, is a concept Andrew Yang has forwarded that would create an additional local economy on top of our monetary one, in which human service hours could be exchanged directly and all human time would be valued equally, providing opportunities for, say, someone to exchange an hour of childcare services for an hour of home repair, an hour of tutoring for an hour of cooking. So like, Prison, we know, is a place where time is valued. That is the thing that we have taken from someone. They are serving time. And I found that one of the more deeply hurtful things about the whole experience was being denied the opportunity to be productive. I'm just supposed to sit there and serve time and lose life. And one of the ways that I surreptitiously found meaning within the prison environment was realizing that I was one of the only literate persons in the prison. Most of the people that I was in prison with were either illiterate or they didn't speak Italian. So as soon as I learned how to speak Italian, I realized that the social credit that I could earn in that environment was helping people write letters and translate for them when they had to go to the doctor and explain why their tummy hurt. And I had this sort of moment of revelation when I was reading your book where it was like, okay, right now in prisons, we have this thing called earned time for good behavior. We reward prisoners for taking part in rehabilitation programs and not getting into trouble. But it's mostly a non-action thing. It's don't, mostly a non-action thing. Don't do the bad thing, action. That's good behavior. Signing right. And sign up for the rehabilitation program, just sort of show up. But what if we made it more proactive? What if you could earn time by teaching your cellmate how to read? Yes. What if you could earn time by being a counselor for nonviolence? And we could actually have prisoners create their own value and see their fellow prisoners as opportunities to create social credit and earned time. I feel like that would revolutionize prison and rehabilitation if we actually put rehabilitation in the hands of the prisoners and gave them the opportunity to create that value for themselves and genuinely incentivize them. Because I feel like right now we make it too difficult for people mm -hmm. to be incentivized to rehabilitate. Anyway, that's my grand scheme. And I want to know if you want to get in on it with me. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that plan. And it's like a reasonable summary of where we have to go where it's not enough to just have rules and say, hey, don't do this to your fellow prisoner. It's like, what about like the 10 million things you could do that would be positive <laughs> where that person is concerned? Right. Start thinking like, what could I be doing? Not what shouldn't I be doing? What could I be doing? And from a data collection perspective, what a great test case for a social credit time bank system that could exist out in the world at large. That was totally divorced from the economy. I love it. I, you know, they're rolling out various pilots of this time banking right now, but the prison environment makes a lot of sense to me because you'd have a lot of people where it would just make them feel a million times more valuable. 
if they looked around and said, wait a minute, like I could actually do something for my fellow inmate and it's going to help both of you. I like the idea of spending time to get time. It's like, hey, you do something positive for your fellow inmates and you get more time with your loved ones. I'm so grateful that you saw my campaign as trying to value humanity in the face of these institutions. Yeah. But we're seeing humanity lose to institutions on so many fronts. When we decided to have the tagline for my campaign, Humanity First, it was radical. Yeah. <laughs> but then you reflect on it and you're like, well, what the heck else could be first? Yep. You know? <laughs> like, it, was, it, was so, it was so wild. Money first? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's like capital first, machines first, yeah. institutions first. Mm-hmm. We literally are putting capital, mm-hmm. institutions, machines ahead of our own needs on so many levels. And that's what we have to change. But how exactly do you get momentum and consensus for change when our media profits most by steering us into separate realities and encouraging outrage? If you look at our problems, they're very, very big and getting bigger, and you need us to come together and try and find real solutions. And the incentives around media companies are to turn us against each other, to polarize us. Basically, we just need everyone to chill out. (laughs) And chilling out requires a different mode of communication. But right now, there are major billion-dollar organizations that benefit from us not chilling out. Yeah. yeah. The social media companies, it's amped up even exponentially, where you have different versions of reality getting funneled into people's feeds. Yeah. But uh, Amanda, you can imagine a world where there are more media organizations that are essentially market insensitive, where they just put out content that they're excited about and believe in. And it doesn't really matter whether people find it scintillating or the ratings are high. In a world where, let's say, CNN ran an hour-long conversation with someone that was kind of long form instead of having the cadence of cable news hits, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can imagine a world where you have government subsidies for that kind of programming where it's like, hey, you run something boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll help you pay for it. Yeah, we'll, we'll make you whole by like filling that advertising hole. There are things you could do in that direction that I think are going to be increasingly necessary because there are three major problems. One, local journalism is dying. Two, media benefits from our polarization and three social media makes everything nastier, more negative, more vitriolic and less real. I'm all for freedom of press and expression, but you can't just enable like a cacophony of falsehoods to overrun us because that's what's happening. But it's hard to fix the problems with our media or any other institution when our government isn't incentivized to care. The thing I've realized now is that our government does not actually respond to what the majority of us think. Let's say a majority of Americans agree that we should reform our criminal justice system, which I think we do at this point. I think they do. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. It's like, uh, so problem solved, right? It's like, no, actually those institutions like still have their own like crazy perverse incentives. So the the big problem now I, I've realized is that we have to be able to translate popular will towards policy changes that cost people money. Right now, the the major issue is that you have these organizations that are making billions of dollars and they don't want anything to change. And so if you go and say, hey, we should give everyone money or we should reform our criminal justice system, there are folks who will kneecap you. And our members of Congress don't truly have incentives to solve our problems because their re-election rate is 94%, even though the approval rate we have of them is 21%. (laughs) Sorry, I just need to hear that again. Their re-election rate is 94%, even though the approval rate we have of them is 21%. Yeah, it's like being in an abusive relationship. Yeah. We're like, at least we know this abusive husband. And you're like, wait a minute, this government doesn't actually like, like, want to respond to, you know, like what, what we think. And be like, why is that? And then you look and say, oh, it's because... Uh, your incentives don't actually require you to listen to us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like that, there was like an onion headline that cracked me up. It was like the American people hire their own lobbyist to work on Capitol Hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the challenge is really going to be to try and rework our institutions so that they're more responsive and more people are, are going to have to act against their own interest. And I now see a path as to how to translate popular will towards 
action. And it's around democracy reform, ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. open primaries, public campaign financing. Now I'm, I want to be like the plumber of government. So these are some of the things that if we were to change the mechanics of government, we'd have a better shot at things. So if we zoom out for a minute to a more global humanity scale, if humanity itself is kind of stuck in a labyrinth, it sounds like the current minotaur we're facing is political dysfunction. Like the machine that is supposed to self-improve and respond to our desires is failing. And if we can fix that, then we can address the bigger minotaur of automation and artificial intelligence. What does humanity's path out of this quagmire look like? Even going into the far future, you know, are we looking at a, a world where none of us have normal jobs or jobs at all? Ideally, we'd end up having roles that are generated by our needs and wants and values and not what the market thinks we should be doing. That's like our our best case scenario. You might have AI doing certain things and then you just say, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves because we kind of prefer it that way, even though maybe you can do it better. (laughs) Like, Let's use poetry as an example. Let's say I come up with an AI that's like really, really good at poetry. You still might have some human poets around because... (laughs) because It's the same reason you buy handmade goods, you know? Yeah, yeah. You value something just because it's handmade, even if it's the exact quality as the machine-made product. Yes. The fact that it was generated by a human will have Mm -hmm. value. Can we get there? I mean, we have a very, very tall challenge uh, ahead of us. Universal basic income is the biggest single step that we could take that I think would just change everyone's outlook because feeling like, wow, I do deserve that money. You know, I I belong. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I matter. Like, that is an enormous step forward. And then you would see many, many more people in communities construct these opportunities that reflect their own needs and, and wants and values because they'd have some resources. They'd look around and say, okay, I've got this money. I've gone out and bought myself some stuff. I did that in like the first couple months. And then by the third month, they'd look around and be like, hey, if 10 of us get together, we can like do something interesting in this direction. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. We have a friend who's been writing a series called Escape Pod about ejecting from capitalism. Escape pod is predicated on the idea that a $1,000 per month collectivized basic income has an economy of scale, really about 10 people. And if you live in the right place and buy the right stuff, you don't need a job anymore if you're getting $1,000 per month basic income. And that allows you to begin to save some of your surplus revenue to buy the technology that allows you to actually move away from buying anything. But the worry is... We'll never get a UBI if people like me are threatening to hack it. Does that break the UBI system? (laughs) Or is that, you know, an example of the UBI system at its best? I think that would be tremendous. Uh, And one of the things I believe it will spur is like a drive towards minimalism, you know, Mm -hmm. where you just have a much lower carbon footprint because... You're in your mini commune, uh, you know, yeah. like uh, doing some farming and tending and writing and wh- whatever it is that you want to work on. And that doesn't break UBI at all. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, there are a lot of people who are very, very excited about that. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing right now? Chilling in the woods. After ending his presidential bid, Andrew Yang launched Humanity Forward a nonprofit that is raising awareness about UBI and supporting candidates who champion human-centered capitalism. They've even taken up the slack where our own government has failed with the 1K Project, which is connecting families affected by the pandemic with those who have the means to offer a thousand a month in assistance, effectively beta testing the effects of a basic income funded by a wealth tax. Well, thank you for digging into my work so deeply. Really huge admirer of yours as well. Uh, And I I agree with you about the fact that this really is about humans trying to reform institutions. And right now in American life, institutions are winning, the money is winning, humans are losing. And that's what we have to turn around. Um, But it was so delightful sitting down with you both. And uh, yeah, like really just uh, excited to collaborate and hopefully help more people discover that we can humanize these things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a thrill for us to to chat with you. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Really. 
big fan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, congratulations on being married. Like, I'm excited for you. Thank you. Oh, thank it you. was the last fun thing before everything <laughs> yeah. stopped yeah. being we fun. We got married before. on Leap Day right before the pandemic, so. <laughs> wow. Yep. This is the last fun thing for a lot of married people. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Stepping out of Andrew Yang's personal labyrinth, we're still stuck in the labyrinth of humanity with lots of blind corners and minotaurs ahead. Automation is still rushing at us, and it's only a matter of time before even podcast hosts get replaced with artificial intelligence. And whether we successfully meet those challenges will depend in large measure on what happens with the most consequential election of our lifetimes, which, as of the airing of this episode, is just 11 days away. We've got some amazing episodes coming up with Malcolm Gladwell, John Ronson, and LeVar Burton. But given the timing, we can't help but linger in politics for one more week, albeit with an unexpected tale. So join us next time as we sit down with Tara Simmons, who went from drug addiction, crime, and prison to sobriety and law school, and who is now running for office. If elected on November 3rd, she'll become the first formerly incarcerated legislator in Washington state. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. You can find James Kalen at medium.com slash escapepod and rapper Zooty on social media at Chef Zoot. Okay, this is episode two, Andrew Yang VO pickups. Um, let's see. This is, oh, it's you. Okay. They've even taken up the slack where our own government has failed with the 1K project which is connecting families affected by the pandemic with those who have the means to offer a thousand a month in assistance. Really? Like there are some millionaires who are like, yeah, sure, I'll give somebody a thousand dollars a month. I mean, that's the whole program. It's yeah. like you can sign up to be a supporter or sign up to be a receiver. Huh. And it just connects you. That's amazing. It's like I want to give a family a thousand bucks a month. I can afford it. You know, that's dope. Yeah, it is dope. Yang's dope. Yang's dope. Yang gang. Yang gang. <laughs> <laughs> These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is listener supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Ha 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 